So as you, uh, as you probably already know, that a, a sermon or a public speech is like a good play or, or a film or a song in that it opens by hopefully arresting its listeners, uh, developing on from there point by point, and finally draws to a strong close. And the, the pastor or speaker or author or performer makes sure that his audience is tracking right along with him so that hopefully when it's all over, they all land in one piece on the same conclusion at the end. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul has been doing in this first letter to the Thessalonians that uh, we've been exploring for these last several weeks. And that he continues to do today, both with his original audience and by extension with us as he guides us into this next element of his message. And he prepares to kind of begin his descent today into some very practical advice that will ultimately deliver us safely to the destination that he's had in view since the beginning. And so I invite you to open your own personal Bibles in front of you. We're going to be looking at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and we'll be reading you the first 12 verses. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. And listen for the voice of the Spirit. So Paul writes then, finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you were doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passions of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgresses and wrongs his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. And now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge your brothers to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. And brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord to us today. Thanks be to God. Gracious God, we ask you to grant us now a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that with the eyes of our hearts enlightened by your word, we may know the hope to which we've been called, the riches of our inheritance in this book, and the greatness of your power to redeem us and the knowledge of your will that you make so very plain. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So this morning, as I said, as we come to this new section in Paul's letter, uh, his first letter to the Thessalonians, which uh, he begins actually making some very practical exhortations to them. And if you remember up to this point, what he's been doing, he's been praising them for their perseverance under persecution, and at the same time expressing his great desire to uh, come to be with them again that he might be able to, as he says in his words, to complete what's lacking in your faith. 
since he'd been, you know, forced to leave them so abruptly against his will. And so, in other words, he, he wanted to finish what he'd started among them. He wanted to go back to that church that he had planted and be able to keep on teaching and, and instructing them. And, and so, knowing that, it seems kind of funny, kind of even a paradoxical way, he opens this section by saying the word, finally. Which, when I was thinking about, it's kind of like, you know, when a pastor tells you that they've uh, gotten to closing point of their sermon, but then they go on to speak for another 20 minutes. <laughs> so fi finally, not really finally. Um, but but that's, not, that's not what Paul was really intended to do here. Uh, when he says that, it's not in the sense of this being his concluding thoughts. Uh, instead, the Greek word he uses is actually better translated. As, if you have the King James Version in front of you, uh, it actually renders this, this word furthermore. But that still doesn't, doesn't quite get it. Because the even better translation of it, I, I think, would be if he were to say, and here's what remains. Here's what remains. And to really catch the sense of all this, I want us to back up just a bit in the letter uh, so you can kind of hear this section all together with that translation. So if you still have your Bibles open uh, in 1 Thessalonians 3, beginning in verse 12, just listen to it with that kind of different little spin on it. He says, May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another. And for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all the saints. And here's what remains. We ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you have received from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you were doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God. Your sanctification. And I think Paul says that kind of so straightforwardly and, and so simply and matter-of-factly that I'm afraid many even well-meaning Christians have missed this. But it's one of the most fundamental issues with which we must concern ourselves, and that is finding and knowing the will of God. Because just like it says in the bulletin article, if you've had a chance to read it this week, if you read the little insert in there, you know, anyone who takes the Christian faith seriously is naturally going to ask the question, how can I know the will of God? Whether that's in, in really big life-altering things or even on down to the tiny day-to-day -day decisions that we all have to make. Like, like, for instance, how can I find out what God wants me to do? And who is it that maybe God intends for me to marry? What kind of business does God want me to be in? What line of work should I pursue? Uh, where should I live? And, and so on. And, and then once that question arises, then we have to ask from where and in what form is the answer to that question going to come? And I think this is where, unfortunately, things can tend to go off the rails. Especially if we think we can reduce the answer to some sort of formula based on either internal feelings or external circumstances. And, and so because of that, hence you have kind of the monthly heresies popping up on the Christian bookstore aisle. And so-called Christian thought leaders try to bank profits off of the genuine dilemmas that people are trying to find an answer for. And hoping desperately that somehow, someone, somewhere will tell them how to know what God wants. When, when the truth is that the answer has been staring them right in the face all along. And yet they still come away wondering, how am I going to know which way to turn? 
how, how's God going to indicate his choice to me? What are the signs to look for so I can know which path to pick between two or three possible options and know which one is the right one? Should I be listening for an inner voice? Are my feelings and emotions being given to me as impressions from God to help steer my decision? How much do circumstances around me enter into the picture? And should I be led by the external things that happen around me? Because, hey, they, they might be a sign. And on and on the spiral kind of goes until, unfortunately, we can emerge even more confused than before. But church, the Bible says God is not the author of confusion. But the world, the flesh, and the devil are. So what do we do? Well, first and foremost, we need to stop starting today, living at the level of our emotions. We've got to stop living at the level of our emotions because church, scripture is very clear that they are unreliable. In fact, Jeremiah 17, 9 goes so far as to say the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And yet, follow your heart is a creed embraced by literally millions of people. Uh, and all you have to do is turn on the television or walk into any public place to see where that kind of thinking has gotten us. And, and the advice to, to follow your heart though is, is so deceptively insidious because it, it sounds really simple, right? And it sounds really beautiful and it sounds really liberating. That it's become a very tempting false gospel to believe. That is until as uh, Pastor John Piper says, he says, that is until you consider that your heart has psychopathic tendencies. I like that line. <laughs> and he says, he says, think about it for a moment. What does your heart tell you? And please don't answer out loud because your heart has likely said things to you today that you would not wish to repeat. I know mine has. I like that line. And church, the truth is no outside person lies to us more than our own hearts do. They don't tell us the truth. They just tell us what we want to hear. Because our hearts were never designed to be followed, our hearts were designed to be led. Our hearts were never designed to be gods in whom we believe they were designed to believe in God. And John Piper goes on to say, he says, we make our hearts gods and ask them to lead us. If we do that, they will lead us to narcissistic misery and ultimately damnation. He says, they cannot save us because what's wrong with our hearts is the heart of our problem. And so, church, whatever you follow today, don't follow your heart. I can tell you, if it just feels right, it probably isn't. So you better check, right? And secondly, we have to be very careful about getting advice from other people. And I'm sad to say many, many times that includes ostensibly religious people, especially the ones who always want to come to you and tell you that they have a word for you from the Lord. Right? And I know I've told you this story before. You might have even heard Pastor John tell this story uh, firsthand about, remember the time the man showed up in your church? The, the man that showed up in your church and he said he wanted you to give up the pulpit that morning so that he could speak, right? Uh, so he, he turns up at John's church and this guy says, I want you to give up your pulpit so that I can give the message this morning. God told him to. To which Pastor John replied without missing a beat, that's funny, you know, I spoke to the Lord this morning and he didn't mention a thing about it. <laughs> <laughs> and that's a true story. 
But it's also one that happens over and over again in lots of different little scenarios where these self-proclaimed prophets deliver their prognostications like they just came down from the pinnacle of Mount Sinai. And you got to be careful. So, so, I mean, can God send a message to someone by someone else? Of course he can. God can do anything he wants, any way that he wants. But if you ever find yourself in that situation where someone claims that they have a word from God for you, there's two important things I want you to keep in mind and remember. Uh, the first one is from Scripture, 1 John 4, 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits. To see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. And, and the second uh, is a famous quote from the great John Owen, who was a nonconformist uh, Puritan church leader and theologian and academic. Uh, this is one of my favorite quotes of his. He says, If anyone's private revelations agree with Scripture, they are needless. And if they disagree, they're false. If anyone's private revelations agree with Scripture, they are needless. If they disagree, they are false. So in other words, what we need is a whole lot more scripture and a whole lot less of people pretending to be prophets because we have the full counsel of God's word sufficient for all time between the covers of his book. Amen. So much so that the prophetic voice is heard directly today in the preaching of the word. And in fact, Paul said that very thing straight out. If you remember back in chapter 2 of this letter when Paul said, in chapter 2, verse 13, he said, We also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in the believers. Folks, God has already told us everything we need to know in the Bible. And so seeking new revelation is dangerous and unnecessary because it, unless you have already plumbed the full depth of Scripture, every bit of it, from beginning to end, and you've uncovered all of its treasures, and you've applied every single one of them to your life, you and I have no business pursuing extra-biblical revelation. Okay? So let's focus on the word that we have. Trusting God when he says it is enough and be content with. One blogger that I was reading in research for this sermon is also an author uh, that was delivered that from that kind of prophetic voice listening kind of thing. He wrote, none of the so-called Christian books I read about hearing God's voice ever encouraged me to read my Bible more. And in the few that did point to Scripture, it was never a priority. They always presented instead private revelation as the veritable treasure, the prize to pursue and he says, so why bother with plain old stale scripture when you can have the exhilarating time of hearing a fresh word from God addressed only to you? That's tempting. But church, as Christians, we need to stop looking for signs and grasping for impressions. And we need to just feed on the word. It's why Romans 12, 2 admonishes, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then you'll be able to test and approve what is God's will, his good and pleasing and perfect will. And that passage really gives us an important sequence here because you see where the child of God refuses to be conformed to the world and instead allows themselves to become transformed by the Holy Spirit. And then our minds are renewed according to the things of God. And we can know God's perfect will for any situation because it's not a secret. God's will is not a secret. 
And Paul told us exactly that, and he told us exactly what it is in today's text. Jesus actually blurts it right out. He says, for this is the will of God. What? Your sanctification. You want to know what God's will is? It's your sanctification. And I know that that word sanctification is a long, really kind of churchy sounding word, but it, it's not all that difficult of a concept if you give it some thought. Because when you boil it all down to sanctify something simply means to set it apart for special holy use. And so when it comes to people, the idea of sanctification is just the process of being made personally more holy. One commentator defined it as this, saying that sanctification is the progressive conformity of the believer into the image of the Savior through the work of the Holy Spirit. That's pretty concise and right on point. In other words, it's a Christian's life looking progressively more and more like Jesus. And this is how it happens. It happens when the Holy Spirit implants eternal life within a spiritually dead soul and brings them to Christ and grants them the gift of repentance and faith, enabling people to believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. And when that happens, then suddenly everything looks new. And this new life from the Spirit produces a new love for God and a new desire to obey the Word of God and a newfound hatred of our old sinful nature that sparks a newfound pursuit of holiness and a new direction in life live with a new passion for God. Now, that doesn't mean we become perfect, as, as nice as that would be. We cannot reach perfection and complete sanctification this side of heaven. But it does mean that when we are fully saved and completely forgiven, that we then want to be more like Christ. And, and it's that impulse that impels us to travel further and further down the road towards sanctification. And that part is not an automatic action of God. The sanctification part is cooperative. It's conditional on our desire and participation. And it's why the Bible tells us to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And not, and I've said this to you before, not as in to work it up or to work for our salvation, but to work it out like we used to have to do with math problems in school. When the teacher would say, don't just mark down the answer, but show me your work. Show me your work. As we diligently seek to live a life holy to God because of his grace toward us. And not just rest satisfied in our present spiritual progress. Because it's the, the realization that God has turned away his wrath that motivates us to live a life pleasing to him. In every kind of way, in thought and in word and in deed. And it is why 2 Peter uh, chapter 1 says, for this very reason... Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love, for these qualities are yours and are increasing. They keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so it's the continual process by which believers are becoming progressively more and more like Christ, which in turn makes us want to be Christ-like even more. 
But then we have to ask, what does that look like practically? Right? How does kind of the rubber meet the road in this? In light of Paul telling us that this sanctification is God's will for us. So if we just go back and consider those same questions over again that we started out with uh, and look at it through this lens. So we take the question of how can I find out what God wants me to do? And then consider it like this. Let's say, who is it that God intends for me to marry? Well, based on what Paul told us, the answer is the person who will walk hand in hand with us down the pathway of life that will get us closer and closer to Jesus. Uh, what about what, what kind of business does God want me to be in? Well, which choice will either further my sanctification or potentially hinder it and turn me away? What line of work should I pursue? Well, which one can I do for the glory of God? Which one may potentially cause me to compromise my principles? Now, obviously, not everyone's called to be a pastor or a missionary or a seminary professor. But that doesn't mean you can't select a career that would put you in a position to make an impact for the faith. Over and above one that would simply just benefit you in the, the realms of the financial or the reputation. How about where should I live? To which the answer, of course, would be where can I best live out my faith and all that it entails to the glory of God. And do it near a solid Christian church that will give me access to a community looking to live out their sanctification too. And we can just go on and on through all the questions. And so honestly, doesn't the, the whole idea of deciding things that way make discerning the will of God a whole lot easier? If, if we simply just decide to make every decision based off of whether it will lead us closer to or further away from the goal of sanctification. And so in the words of the Apostle Paul, then aspire, brothers and sisters, to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you. So that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. And now we know how to do that. How do we do that? We do that by looking to Jesus who sanctified himself for us. Which is both the basis and the condition of our being set apart. Since we are sanctified and sent out into this world because Jesus was. Which is why uh, in John 17 he says, I have given them your word. And the world has hated them. For they are not of this world. Any more than I am in this world. And my prayer is not that you would take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. But listen to this. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is true. Amen. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. And for them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. And you see, our, our Lord's sanctification is the pattern of and the power for our own. Because as Jesus continually hungered to do the will of the Father, he set himself apart in order to carry out the redemptive plans and purposes that God had. And that God had prepared for him as our Messiah. And to be the Christ. The Christ that was sent into the world of men as a man to be the perfect, sinless son and to live a perfect, <coughs> sinless human life so that the character and attributes of the one eternal, omnipotent, holy God might be revealed to the fallen race of humanity. And not only to just fill that kind of empty, God-shaped hole we have in us, but to make us spiritually hungry and thirsty for all that God has for us. Have you ever felt that hunger? Have you ever experienced that kind of thirst? Now some of you, if, you're, if you are being honest this morning, maybe you'll admit that you've been 
looking for God's will possibly in wrong places. But perhaps God is showing you today that what you're looking for is only available to you in his work. And that's not a private revelation, church. That's an absolute truth. And if that's you, and if you hear the Spirit speaking to you through the text this morning, answer it. Right where you are. You don't have to walk down the aisle. You don't have to repeat a prayer. You don't have to sign a commitment card. Just in your own words and in the silence of your heart, cry out, Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner, save me. If you do that today, just come, come see me after or call me this week and share that with me so we can talk about next steps. But for you believers, if you're already a believer today, but you've not been seeking the Lord's will every day in genuine worship and scripture reading, if you've not been hungry for the word or thirsty for his presence in a while, today's the day to come back. But either way, God is calling you to begin satisfying your soul with him and with him alone. And not with outside revelation because church, he won't tolerate rivals. And so here's what remains. Here's what remains. We ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you have received from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this message disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. God our Father, forgive us for seeking your will everywhere but where it may be found. But Father, teach us your truth. Show us your perfect will. And then give us willing hearts to follow as you lead us closer and closer to you and mold us more and more into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. And brothers and sisters, we